In this episode, Ryan updates us on his automobile experience. The conversation continues into gimmicks in the infinite banking world, capital theory, Austrian economics, financial secession. So we had fun. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening. All right. Welcome to the Banking with Life podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery. And I'm your co-host, Ryan Griggs. Look, uh, Happy New Year. You know, we've had a, a New Year episode released and this is going to be shortly after. Somewhere during the Somewhere, year. Somewhere, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but so, once again, you know, it's unscripted. We appreciate you tuning in, listening, and sharing, and commenting if they're Most legitimate the and positive <laughs> comments. <laughs> and you know, while we're saying that, I, we really do appreciate all the listeners, and we really do appreciate the interaction. What I'm not particularly interested in is anyone trying to interpret what we say. Mm. Um or I'm not overly interested in all of, you know, the machinations that are regurgitated, you know, the machinations that exist in the infinite banking world, you know, all the different names they call this idea of using life insurance um, in a non-traditional way. Mm. So we appreciate what you're doing, but this platform is not created for anything to be promoted other than the idea that you can become your own banker yeah and and you might you know rethink your thinking (laughs) (laughs) or or to debate and it's not about anybody in particular but oh you get the calls every now and then or the emails or the messages and it's just such so curious that you could fall into the uh i don't know what it is the habit or talking on the phone with somebody and then out of nowhere they want to convince you or persuade you that their position on a certain topic is correct and oh yeah it's like okay you know and that you know difference of opinion uh you know go about your business that's fine but i'm not interested (laughs) (laughs) learned from nelson himself and from you and from the you know many times that we've been together so it's yeah i'm just not interested yeah and and it's all in love i mean i'm seriously um you know it's all in love we love the interaction we Mm -hmm. appreciate it you know we answer questions we engage with a lot of the listeners over the phone or through email Mm -hmm. i'm just specifically talking um about the um people that want to interpret what we're saying Mm -hmm. i (laughs) I mean i don't use correct english but i speak english (laughs) right and so yeah you know, that's as an example or somebody may be doing something in their personal financial life that's uh different than what we're talking about and so they want to promote and uh it's almost like get approval or support mm. for what they're doing mm. you know and it's like well whatever it is you're doing god bless you right you know so yeah it's all in love right. <laughs> okay and that's kind of where we're going to go with this today is <laughs> the love. We're the, going. Yeah, the love. That's a, it's like a former episode, love, peace and chicken grease. Right. Yeah. Uh, but the idea that, and you mentioned it beforehand. And I think that the reason that there's a lot of this rebranding and maybe sometimes gimmicky sales methods in the infinite banking or in the life insurance world is because of the nature of the business. And we talked, think in the new year's episode or in the christmas episode about high information versus low information mm-hmm. kinds of sales you know it's and, then, and we, we absolutely want to tie that in because i want to bring the listeners up to date <laughs> on your automobile experience yes yeah okay so and, let me say this whoa whoa, say whoa, 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 wait, wait. <laughs> because 
uh, that's where that came up, a high information yeah. kind of a sell. Yeah. And, but we kind of left them hanging. We did. We did. Uh, on purpose. I mean, at the time, I hadn't made yeah, a purchase on, yet. So, yeah, But purpose. to catch everybody up, the idea was, okay, you know, opportunity to buy Japanese or the opportunity to buy German Volkswagen in particular. And I had I drove a Volkswagen and spent a lot of time learning about Volkswagens because they're more complex. They're over-engineered. However, they're also a superior driving experience, and I like driving, and I wanted something that you know I could enjoy. Uh, you know, derive the value out of it that I was seeking. And With your experience, I learned more about Volkswagen than, than I really wanted to. Yeah, so did I. But it was fun. Uh, uh, and that's really what I wanted to end up with. But, you know, through those, through that, those months and hours of research and searching and then after having spoken about it on the podcast, and I think there were a lot of valuable lessons there oh, no to question. pull out of that conversation. That's why we took so long. I think it was an hour and 40 minute <clears throat> podcast. I mean, it was, it was no joke. And nobody else out there has been an hour and 40 minutes consistently every other week talking about it. <laughs> Just saying. No. Uh, so I think there's a lot of valuable lessons and I think there's more valuable lessons to gain out of the, how it, how it concluded. And mm -hmm. really what I decided um, was that the problems in that particular high information business, that German automotive business, were overwhelmingly problematic. The impediments were too great. That no, it's you were like gonna have to fly to California to was literally planning car. on <laughs> flying out of state to get the one that I wanted. And it's like, my gosh. So the lesson that I've gained from it is that sometimes and perhaps even often in a high information sort of business maybe it's the automotive maybe it's the financial uh it can become so cumbersome and so problematic that even the most well-intended high, most highly motivated most uh interested you know the person who's done the most research right relative to the mean even that person can become disillusioned and throw their hands up and say, whatever, forget it's about too it. Complicated. You know? And I really think that ha it happened with me. I ended up fortunately finding a very good deal on a, of course, a Japanese car that, but that was <laughs> in the state close by. It was a very, really good deal on a, um, older, you know, newer relative to what I had prior, but, still compared to now here in 2020 older but uh, only driven hardly ever driven yeah a widow and right pasadena yeah or yeah. somewhere like that yeah <laughs> um so i it ended up for the best and got a, a good deal out of it for what i ended very up with very nice car a nice car but however there, there's still that part of me that's remorseful um you know not regretful but sorrowful like oh man i you know i had this idea in mind about how things could have ended up and it could have been really good because mm -hmm. i saw the potential and the thing that i wanted mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. and i think a lot of people who are vetting financial strategy or agents or a concept uh you know as you go about your research and you develop a vision of the whole deal you can start to see what it might look like and it is really sad and tragic and unfortunate when the complexity or the, at least the manufactured complexity Ooh. the uh, uh the the gimmicks the marketing the all the extra noise the complications can, amplified and taken advantage of yeah can make you feel disheartened 
and uninterested and irritated even frustrated uh and i think that so that's another lesson to apply to this financial world there's been so many and and i think what you were pulling out and what we talked briefly about before the show was uh you know that this is a consequence of this is a single example of a single instance of this problem of high information sales of of you know your not your normal you know garden variety go to the grocery store buy you know bread and milk kind of sale this is a a, a bigger deal this is potentially someone's most uh important financial decision you know one of their most important purchasing decisions could ever be. Yeah. could be and it, it, and cars are up there in that same category of purchase that same category of economic activity and so i think that's why we see or i have felt so many similarities uh and i just my hope for people is that they don't end up like me with the volkswagen right my hope for people is that they can find the the truth they can mm-hmm. sift through the noise they can Absolutely. get to clarity uh, and and make a decision move forward and be proud of what they've done yeah you know? of course i mean i agree with that um because it is seemingly complicated all right and it and there is high information the more i the way i see it it, it apparently it looks complicated Right. And because it looks complicated, that can be taken advantage of by the promoter mm. by, or by a promoter. I'm mm. not speaking of anyone in sp- particularly or an organization or a company. Mm-hmm. But what I've seen that from the outside looking in, you know, and Nelson used to say this is caught more than taught. Mm-hmm. Right. So you get into the industry and the financial world. It's kind of complicated. The agents have to learn what's going on. Right. Um, well, what does that mean? It's like they, well, they have to learn the infinite banking concept and what it is, and and once you um, see what it is and 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 you put it into practice, um, it serves you very well. Well, how do you see what it is? How do you you know how do you how, how do you, you sift through all this high, you know, seemingly complex information whenever there's. 45 iterations across the country or however many there is, you know, this banking, that banking, this <laughs> banking. Um, and I, and I question sometimes whether these individuals or these, uh, programs or companies, whomever they are, if they've even read Nelson Nash's book more than one time, even if they, I question whether they've even given it one thorough reading, mm. right? Now everybody can, cursory glance at and glossed over and just Thumb sit through, through. Yeah. yeah and say oh yeah i've read that saw the illustrations must have saw the whole yeah. message right yeah yeah and then too you know, we've <laughs> spoke about that before so it's a it's apparently a highly complex thing which i think that in and of itself the appearance of it being complex allows the opportunity to either continue and take advantage of that apparent complicating compli- mm-hmm. complex mm-hmm. looking thing take advantage of that and contort and can you know, just contort policies and design and bring in third party software and, and like it's almost like mystify somebody with numbers i call it beating them up with numbers mm-hmm. to prove whatever points they're trying to prove yeah you know am i going to have a certain death benefit of a certain year am i going to have a certain cash value in a certain year and um Oh, if the numbers are bigger, they're better. Well, 
not necessarily mm, yeah. right and it's it's like you the the simplicity of becoming your own banker is the other option right you have complexity simplicity you can take advantage of either one and almost try to well what i see is i feel like they're trying to tell a story that may or may not exist in nelson's book right you can make life as complicated as you want it to be <laughs> absolutely i mean how, how how minuscule and minute and narrow do you want to get? I mean, we have this human this human behavior. We all want to know, mm-hmm. right? We want to know the truth fundamentally, right? And we don't want it overcomplicated. And we, we want it simplified. Um, and, and I'm all for simplicity. I think simplicity is a virtue. Brevity is mm-hmm. a virtue. You know, clarity is a virtue. At the end of the day, the smartest thing you can do is educate yourself because yep. that is the defense uh, against um, smoke and mirrors, gimmicks, over complexity, yeah. and over simplifying things too. And and if I can say Nelson, the four fundamentals that he talked about the whole fifteen years that I had the pleasure of interacting with him is number one, think long range. That's pretty difficult for the average all American. Mm-hmm. You can't think past next week, next year. What's the rate of return in that first oh, policy year? <laughs> and then uh, the second is, don't be afraid to capitalize. Don't be afraid to pay a premium, right? And the third is be an honest banker, mm. right? Repay your loans. Mm-hmm. You know how much of that is going on out in the big wide world, illustrating on loan repayments. <sighs> I think it's appallingly lacking. Playing to that that mentality of get something for nothing you know just uh-huh. put the put the money in there you'll get the cash value you get it right back out with the policy loan you know and then just let that policy loan ride and you'll get a, a mysterious windfall at some point in the future when, <laughs> when that business that you're so confident in sale, sells for what you think it's going to sell for yeah oh there we could do a whole <laughs> podcast on that and then four was um don't do business with banks other than a checking and savings account mm-hmm. don't be beholden or dependent upon the third-party lender or to right. the third-party lender and then the last few years of his life, he said, uh, number five is rethink your thinking. So most of what I see out there, uh, not all, mm-hmm. is a complete violation of those four fundamental principles. Mm-hmm. Right? In some method, if, if I'm afraid to capitalize if I have to have 100% cash value in day one. And let me say that uh, you know there are companies out there that will write like 5% to the base. Mm. And ninety five. You said you didn't want to get into this. <laughs> and ninety five percent to the PUA. Yeah. Okay, so can you do that? Yeah, there are also universal life policies that illustrate very, very, very well. I'm just saying, if you if that's the basis of your thinking, you're violating. You're you're afraid. You're not thinking long term. You're not thinking past the first year, right? And then you're uh, violating that. Afraid to pay a premium? Hell yeah, you're afraid to pay a premium. Mm-hmm. Absolutely you are. Afraid to capitalize. Afraid. Increasing the likelihood that you'll become dependent on conventional bankers in the future. So if you don't break the fourth rule, you're getting ready to. I mean, at the end of the day. <laughs> and you've stomped all over the fifth one as well. Oh, yeah. Because well, it's a continuation of flawed thinking. Yeah. At the end of the day, they're just not they doing what. over that. They're just not doing what Nelson taught, though. They did not. That, that's true. And if you want to do that. Go. Perfect. Go right ahead. But to call it infinite banking, to say that it's becoming your own banker, to say that you're doing what Nelson taught, it's like, nah, really. What's the dividend? What's that? 
What's, what's the dividend? How fast my, what's my internal rate of return over the next yeah. 30 years? Yeah. Well, you mentioned one thing I want to blow up a little bit too, the simplicity versus clarity thing, because that happens a lot, I've noticed in the industry with other agents and advisors is, you know, we say, well, we believe in the concept so much. We believe in the power of becoming your own banker. All we, re- what we really need to be doing is make it simple for people. And I dumb it down, dumb it down. Dumb for it down, a, yeah. yeah. Oh, I, don't, I don't like that. You know, the way I think, I think simplicity is kind of like profitability. You know, it's a byproduct. If you're providing value, if you're conducting your profession well, if you're making a valuable exchange, if, the, if you know, it's like the, the old saying, if value is clear, buying is easy. And if value is clear, selling is easy. You know, if you do your job well, you provide value, you know, you're going to be profitable. It's going to come, right? Well, same thing with simplicity and clarity. If you're successful in clarifying something, it'll seem simple. The simplicity is the natural byproduct. It's the profit of having performed the service of clarifying, you know? So to say like, I want to be, to say like, I want to make things simple is like saying I want to be profitable. Well, no kidding. You know, yeah, okay, you and me both. And we all, life would be better if things were simple. But simplicity, it's like the, in, the psych, in the psychology world, <clears throat> people talk about, you know, I want to I live a happy life. I want to be happy. I want to target happiness. And it's like, well, duh. You know, you, who doesn't? You know, I want to be sad. It's like, no. Everybody, I want to be angry yeah. my whole life. It's like everybody <laughs> wants to be happy. Everybody wants things to be simple. Everything, everybody wants to be profitable. But those are all byproducts of doing something else of creating value elsewhere. Uh, And in the world of finance, as it pertains to understanding a given concept, I think what we wanna do is not simplify, it's to clarify. And if we clarify, and we've done that successfully, things will seem simple, Mm -hmm. right? That's how, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in terms of training agents, which we now do a little bit of, there's the desire to wanna teach, (laughs) there's the desire to wanna teach how to trigger the light bulb moment, right? Where you see, oh, you hear it in the voice, do the eyes get big? Oh. You go back, oh, how do you? <clears throat> okay, that doesn't come from trying to make something simple. That comes from clarifying something. And there's a whole uh, set of activities and tasks and things that the agent and the individual have to go through to get there, to get to that moment of clarity, right? And that's where I think it lines up so well with what Nelson said that IBC is more caught than taught, right? That moment of catching is the moment of clarity. And, and I think oftentimes what the individual who's in, interested in the concept, engaged in the concept, in the concept, the reason that they don't know exactly where the light switch is is because we haven't, we haven't articulated the vocabulary and the framework necessary to understand how IBC fits. Oh, no question. Relative to everything else. So that's the task. Yes. And if we can do that, if we can <clears throat> specify all of that and make clear, again, how IBC fits relative to the other things, then you're, the individual is more likely to find the light switch and you're, he's more likely to catch it. He's more likely to get it. And then he's more likely to hunt you down to pay a premium, mm-hmm. you know, which is the appropriate relationship, I believe. Well, I think it's natural. I mean, in in, in a, that aha moment, you know, the, the light bulbs goes on, that's priceless. It's you know, probably, absolutely. Client, when, when, when you get it, when, when whatever triggers or happens in your thinking, in your mind, 
it's like, oh. Then, oh my gosh, it's like, you'll never be able to unsee <laughs> what you've just seen, you know? Um, that's, that's process. And, and I think really that, that most advisors, most agents in the big wide world want to do the right thing, right? They yes. don't know how best to help their client reach mm-hmm. that moment of clarity. Right, mm-hmm. um, which creates a whole nother market for all these third-party vendors to um, foist products <laughs> onto the independent agent advisor out there. Mm-hmm. Which the whole industry is rife with that illustrations, examples, and machinations of this. Well, if you do this, this, and this, and and I've gone through it in my profession, my career, my practice. Yeah. You know, you just want to convey what's really going on here, and. You can't really do that with numbers, in my opinion. There's the math. That's math the, is the math is the math. That is the biggest change, not necessarily change, but the, the most salient mental conceptual thing I think has developed in my own understanding of how to go about this business is that it's so not about the numbers. It is not. I mean, when I first got in, there's a very prominent third-party numerical service popular in the business. There's a bunch of them. And I was like, how do I get involved? You know, <laughs> so and, <laughs> I'm going to die without that. And, I need that. Yeah. I, can't, I can't do this without that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one more tool that I got to have in my tool bag. Oh, the tool bag thing. It's, uh. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, oof, dodged one there. You know, it's like, <laughs> I'm so glad it's I the didn't. Matrix. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So glad I didn't get caught up in it and just continually going back to the book, going back to the concepts, going back and then following my own path too. Mm-hmm. and working with the guy now, he's trying to think through you know, what, how he's going to uh, conduct his business at the very initial starting stages. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I was recalling to him, you know, how in my beginnings, how it all started to come together. And it's like, you know, I had to follow what spoke to me what attracted me and for me that was the economics yeah what what expand on that what did what, attract you so to this <clears throat> i noticed really what had been maybe a year year and a half in and then and constantly dealing with these accusations from the other financial people and from the general public but mostly from the financial people that we were disregarding the role of investing you know or we, you're focused strictly on getting paid commissions. Right, of course. But for me, it's like the accusation that we were leaving something out of the financial picture, namely investing and sure. how important, you know, what if somebody wants to get into equities? You know, the, the, the heaviness of the moral accusation and the tone <laughs> that these, you know, captive agency employees would level at, you know, a chamber of commerce meeting really started to bug me. Mm-hmm. And so this happened at the Chamber of Commerce meeting. You, you got elbows was, to elbows with an investment advisor guru. Well, I'm six unquote. five, so I was elbow <laughs> to forehead. But yeah, <laughs> was he intimidated? I, I think he was. You know, but, uh, but I was getting frustrated because I didn't have the answer, you know, and that bothered me. It's sure. like I know what we're doing is good, but with this objection, how specifically to respond? It started to irritate me. Well, then, of course, going back and rereading Nelson, as we both do. Uh, those lines about opportunity and how it relates to capital really just jumped right out at me. And the reason they jumped out at me is because in my academic or scholarly or intellectual research, you know, I'm big into the Austrian school of economics. And right now there's a big resurgence in entrepreneurship research and, you know, what all that means. And the, the average 
if I can interject here, the average Austrian so wants to be a savvy businessman. You think so? I, I'm just reading between the lines of the articles that I read. Uh. And I'm not, that's, that's not accusatory in any way <laughs> or anyone. Tiptoe around. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like the uh, Austrian, you know, my God, if, if the Federal Reserve ceased to exist tomorrow, what in the hell are they going to do? Mm. Mm. Well, Murray Rothbard, I mean, and to, to validate what you're saying, Murray Rothbard. Oh, thank you. I need validation. Well, just to, <laughs> not that you need it, but Murray Rothbard used to say, you know, if, if the role of the state was not so pervasive in the economic affairs of mankind, then the role of the free market economist would be very minimal. We'd be, there'd be a lot fewer of us, and all we'd be doing really is teaching. Right. Well, and then and so then they they then then they could maybe become a legitimate savvy businessman. Oh, almost, oh, 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 there's a whole way you can follow that rabbit hole. I'm not. Yeah. Listen, I'm just winning friends and influencing people. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, but okay, so okay. But background in Austrian economics, interest in entrepreneurship, and how it related to finance, because a lot of people who study Austrian economics have gotten away from money money and banking. You know, in the, in the Austrian world, uh, capital research, capital theory, capital and interest theory is referred to as like the black hole because people just get lost in it. It's claimed the names of many like Nobel Prize winning or close to it economists, right? They get lost in capital theory. Uh, Hayek, Hayek for example, <laughs> uh, wrote a book called Prices in Production and he was going to get into, of course, he had a different idea of capital than I and Mises and Manger do, but he was gonna, he didn't even incorporate, or I'm sorry, not price in production, pure theory of capital. He had a book called Pure Theory of Capital. It was called the Pure Theory because he wanted to deal with real, as in non-monetary things. Capital. So not even in the book yeah. did he discuss money, right? And, and the plan was to eventually <laughs> discuss capital in terms of money. He never did it, right? Nobel Prize winning, one mm -hmm. of the probably the most well-known Austrians mm -hmm. got lost in the black hole of capital theory. Right. Okay, so point being, I think a lot of Austrians are afraid of it uh, and not, you know, out of, I'm not, no moral accusation, but it's like professionally. It's they don't like, want to fall off wanna, into the black hole. Right. Well, if right. I want to, if I want to publish in order to get, move up the unionized chain towards tenure, then, you know, I can't, I got to be an authority on something. And if, if something's complicated, then the chances are lower that I'm going to be an authority on it. So I'll just, you know, for the sake of my professional and maybe my family's you know, the, my ability to generate income, I'm going to set it aside. Oh my gosh. Right? I love this. It's so fit in. Yeah. But so they do and they have. Yeah. And so that has also bothered me. Okay. So <laughs> all these things kind of are coming together. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I see the thing about in the middle of all this, I'm doing a reading group with mm -hmm. Bob Murphy. Uh, and we, we read uh, Carl Manger's 1871 principles of economics. Uh, in that, there's an introduction, coincidentally, by Friedrich Hayek, who referred to uh, Menger's later views on capital, not in 1871, but in 1888. The unpublished. And I'm like, <clears throat> what? <laughs> There's more? Yeah. And so I go find it, and it's sure, lo and behold, and we've had a podcast on this, so we don't have to get into it now. Manger had a financial monetary view of capital. It's the same one that Nelson had. It is in contrast. It's distinct from what the dominant view of capital is. Uh, and then Nelson links it to opportunity. Mm. And it's like, oh my gosh, there's a relationship between capital and opportunity. And so after that uh, engagement at the Chamber of Commerce with the 
five foot yeah. one got, uh, financial guru. You come yeah. home and then those capital this, seventy plus times Nelson mentions capital and yes. becoming your own banker mm-hmm. jumps off the page, leaps off the page, and it's like gets oh, all over oh, you. And you can't get it off. Can't get off. I Don't want to get it off. No, of course yeah. not. And then it occurs op, occurs to me that opportunity, a, a type of opportunity, is investing. Right, and that's all investing is. Investing happens to be a the form of taking advantage well, of what Wall the Street individual says, perceives oh, yeah, to be an this opportunity. Investment product is an opportunity, so it should attract capital. Which uh, and I, how I, convenient, right? I yes. have these conversations with my clients and prospective clients all day long. Mm-hmm. And know. so to, to to see that, to start to see that whole relationship, and to discover that we've perverted the relationship between capital and opportunity. Just like you say, you know, the, the idea, even among many economists, is that opportunities attract capital. And it's like superficially, that makes sense. It it's sounds like, good. Yeah. Right, sounds good. It sounds good on his face. Yes. It makes sense. Yes. Upon initially hearing it. Right. So it must be right. But. And then if you have a PhD behind your name, Right, and you, it's and definitely you, right. <laughs> yeah, of course, it's complicated. You've just simplified yeah. it, and you're an authority. Right. So it must be right. So it, it, the problem with it, though, is that it presupposes the observation of the opportunity. Look, there's not. You can't go to the store and grab an opportunity off the shelf and buy it. Right. Opportunities are not physical things in and of themselves. Right. To say the word opportunity implies some sort of judgment on the individual. In fact, entrepreneurs, the entrepreneurial mm-hmm. element of us, that to say the word opportunity implies something else. It implies things that have already happened, right? It implies judgment. Well, okay, what affects an entrepreneur's judgment? Well, my goodness, you know, if you walk around with $50,000 in your pocket, okay, the world's going to look a little different to You're you. You're going to be separated from it as soon as a Gestapo stops you as asset forfeiture. That's well, what's going to happen there. And then yes. you're going to spend $75,000 with your attorneys trying to get that back. Okay, my God. <laughs> but point being, if you have control over a large, just like Nelson says, if you have control over a large pool of financial value, if you have a lot of cash in your pocket, if you have access to a lot of capital, if you have, say, for instance, contractually guaranteed access to a large amount of capital. I like it. Then the way you see the landscape of potential economic activity, that you're, the, the way you approach the idea of opportunity will be different. And you can't change. No I, question. I think that's a scientific fact. Like you can't, I don't think you could argue that that is even not the case. Like oh, well, somebody's going to argue that's not the case. You can argue, but it doesn't mean you're right. right. I agree with yeah. you. And there's no question the, what, um, it's classified as an opportunity. Let me, let me I'm, I'm, I love it because the more cash value, I've discovered this for me, mm. myself, several, many, many of my clients, and I tell them that this will, practicing the infinite banking concept correctly, okay, will hone your skills in identifying opportunities because now you're coming into the marketplace with a whole new set of information. Oh, wait a minute. I do not Mm. care what the interest rates are from the third party lender. I do not care what they require because I don't need them. (laughs) All right. And, and so now if I have access to capital at whatever, 5% as an example, and I have a contractual right to that access, and I'm in control of how, if, or when it gets repaid, that's brand new information that the average entrepreneur 
does not have because mm-hmm. they don't enjoy that ability for the most part. In the all-American average family, it applies. Okay? Um, now, I got a whole new set of information to properly classify opportunities. Mm-hmm. You know how many things suddenly become not opportunities mm. that meet the requirements that I can set because of this new information that I have, because mm-hmm. of this new, and I, the information is all from my experience, mm-hmm. right? And the vetting that I've tried to do, I mean, my, my heart goes out to the listener because you have to step over and wade through a bunch of BS mm-hmm. to get to the truth, mm-hmm. right? And I'm not saying we're perfect and everything that we say is exactly 100% correct, but by God, it's like the Austrians. They have it more correct than the other schools, my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Does that mean they're 100% correct? Nope. Yeah, probably not. Oh, my gosh, we're human. Right. All right, so I digress a little. Right. But, but we're it getting will, somewhere. It will hone, increase, add to, almost, I'm going to say, perfect your ability to identify yeah. an opportunity so now what's that worth though what put that on it put that what's on the a, rate of return on that? yeah put that on a life insurance illustration <laughs> you know and compared I'm not, to that mutual fund oh my gosh <laughs> so there okay. then it became oh my gosh and it kind of culminated in that talk i gave <clears throat> last february the the one opportunity I've had to speak at. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, you're young. Yeah, of There'll course. There'll be more. <laughs> I'm sure there will be. I just they love a you. A little gentle poking, but uh, yeah, David. <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of came. He listens. He probably doesn't listen this far into it. So, well, at, at 33, David, we're making fun of you. We love David. We do Sorry. very much. Infinite banking concepts. Nation uh, So okay. we ended up. So. It, it all kind of came together at that, that talk I gave in February of this past year in 2019 uh, that the right way to respond to, and it's totally transformed how I respond to the objection, right? When people start talking about rates of return and all this, it's like, okay, clearly you've jumped clear over. I did. Everybody else has. You've jumped clear over the relationship between capital and potential <coughs> for positive investment performance. And then you can go into Nelson's uh, especially becoming uh, building your warehouse of wealth, the second book, where he gives examples from his own life about opportunities that he had that he would not have had did he not have access to substantial capital and the return, the percentage returns. Can't even calculate you know, it. Yeah, we ain't even talking about no. Uh, what's his name? Bernie Madoff. You know, twelve percent, one percent per month is supposed to be impossible. No money manager could ever do that, right? Certain financial entertainers like to advertise similar sorts of quote unquote historical rates of return in their mutual funds, and we're arguing about twelve or fifteen or eight or seven or four, whatever. Small <laughs> potatoes, nothing compared to the four, five, six digit percentage returns you can get if you have access to a large pool of financial uh, of, of capital of financial value and you know how to properly identify and classify an opportunity and what's that that then the education oh my gosh are you gonna have kids are you gonna have grandkids are you gonna teach them any but of this you know what a car costs what's that worth <laughs> you do know what a car do you know what a wedding costs i know all I of you no. gentlemen out there that have daughters you know do you know what a wedding costs <laughs> if you have more than one um <laughs> so so now, now the objection, I get the objection. It's like, oh, they just really don't get. It. And then I feel for, and I can, I kind of have an idea of how far away somebody is, someone who's investigating the infinite banking concept, who's concerned with the, you know, well, I might be missing out on my, 
mutual fund, you know, all my friends, all my buddies are in the market. I'm going to miss out on that. First of all, not true. You know, you can do both, but uh, it's just like, there's so much left to be done. And isn't there so much work to do? Yes. Right. There's so much groundwork to be laid. And I think the frontier is broad. And this is why, and, and people, you know, I'm accused of, Oh, you're too intellectual. You're too high level. You're too academic. Okay, fine. Well, you know, it, it, it matters somewhat to understand that what we're suggesting, what we're talking about, the idea of becoming your own banker is rooted in much, much deeper, (laughs) well-founded, well-articulated historical theory, right? Like we can go back to 1870. Everyone, everyone's fans of the mutual fund industry and the tax qualified plans yeah, and all me, this. Let me say, those are brand new. <laughs> that's no like, question. The first mutual fund, I believe, is in 1935, somewhere around there. Mm. Right, and at somewhere, that time, yeah, yeah 19, in 1930s, I think it was 1935 in American funds. I could be wrong. Mm. I mean, they were absolutely one of the first ones and it was in the mid to late 30s, okay? Mm. At that time, the all-American average family built their capital their money in life insurance right okay the qualified plans didn't exist until the uh as we know them today the defined benefit the defined contribution the ira's 401ks you know they didn't come out until the 80s the keel plan and and if we if i'm digressing maybe a little too far but not i don't think so look at the uh senate colluded with Mm. wall street and the term promoters in the Mm. late 80s in 86 and 88. Oh, wait, and the tax qualified plan came out in 88 and 89. What a dink. Mm. okay? Mm. Um, and, and then before that, it was after World War II, the defined benefit. You work with this company for 50 years and you're 50 years old. We're going to pay you an X number of dollars every month in a pension, which they're all imploding across the country, mm. pensions. And so the companies have gotten away from pensions, defined benefit, and moved toward defined contribution. And so you're on your own, partner. You know, you mm-hmm. you put in your six thousand dollars a year in IRA and catch up provision eighteen thousand if you're in a four hundred one k and ad nauseum. And we wonder why the older generations have become so dependent upon the government for their late life income. Well, listen, let's talk about that cradle to grave. The cradle to grave part of the construct is dependency. All right, and. I I, I want to say you brought you brought up mutual funds. You know, we brought up um, bonds. Did you bring up bonds earlier? I don't think so. Okay, perfect. Well, I'm going to bring them up now. Right. <laughs> so you look at the, the the talking heads, the financial promoters of Wall Street, put your money in mutual funds. Well, Dalbar, D-A-L-B-A-R, is a research you know, institute, mm-hmm. organization mm-hmm. that provides a plethora of data to the financial industry. Okay. Well, you just compare the bond return to the average equity return, so the average investor in bonds, the average investor in equities, guess who wins? Mm. The bond. Now, now think about this, <clears throat> um, and, I, and I promise you I'd rather have people owe me money. All right, <laughs> I mean, that's what a bond is, right? Debt obligation, okay. Um, where, pray tell, does the life insurance put the premium that you pay into it? You know, when you pay a premium to the life insurance company, it's not your money anymore. Okay, but you have access to it contractually. We can talk about that all day long. They have to put that money to work to meet future obligations. Mm-hmm. There's a 100% chance you're going to die, 100% chance I'm going to die. So they've got to put that money to work to meet that future obligation. Oh, wait, and if it's a dividend-paying whole life insurance policy issued by a mutual company, there is a guaranteed cash value. At some point in time in the future, you can walk away with that cash value. 
that surrender value, what the terminology is important. Well, that's an obligation to the life insurance company. Where are they going to put the premium to work to meet those future obligations that are uh, 100% going to happen? You are going to die. An index Uh, fund. (laughs) Yeah, of course. So um, I just want to say that I am uh, indirectly heavily positioned in bonds. <laughs> However, there's an entity that exists between me and the bonds. Mm-hmm. And you know, they're managing those portfolios over a 100 year time span. Performing that a valuable service. That's I'm not interested in doing. Mm. Oh my gosh. Oh, and then the inverse relationship between bonds and interest rates ad nauseum. Uh, I digress a little. I'm just saying Dalbar, the average return on bonds the average return on equities over a long time period, Dalbar proves that the bond investor wins. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for letting me. Of course. And you said something in there about terminology and because one of the objections we get a lot of the time is, you know, I got to pay interest to the life insurance to get my money. And you Uh, said that once you pay the premium, it's no longer my money. And that's exactly right. And Gary North, who I wrote about recently, an article which appeared in the 20 January 2020 banknotes which I'll get into in a second but this has to do with him you know once you pay that premium it isn't your money anymore it's not it becomes your capital the cash your cat your cash value is your capital and people you know it's like well is that good is that bad you know people like money capital is kind of misunderstood well very much misunderstood you know the the important element in your financial or economic life is not your money per se it's your capital it's how much capital you control over the course of your lifetime it's whether or not you have contractual control over capital in your lifetime why because you can leverage capital right you can borrow against it sure right you can benefit from its purchasing power without having to deplete it right whereas with money notes or you know digits digits in a checking account to benefit from them more most often you requires liquidation you have to sell it off right now of course you can go and uh, borrow against a checking account at a commercial bank and all that reintroducing dependency on a third-party lender so it's kind of beside the point right (laughs) the the, the value is that the, the important point is that it's capital that matters and so it's not a problem that it's no longer your money when you pay a premium, it's better to have the capital, right? There's all sorts of contractual reasons, guarantees, why, uh, historical experience to suggest why the capital is the more important element. So <coughs> I just want to say that. And, and it's one thing that, for example, uh, Professor Gary North in an excruciating article, an article that just, I mean, really nastily targeted the industry, IBC, the uh, infinite banking concept, becoming your own banker, the product dividend paying whole life. It was one of the things that clearly was not understood. And so a while back, it's been a few months now, I wrote this, maybe even a year. It's been probably almost yeah. a year, yes. I wrote an article sort of line by line deconstructing. Uh, the erroneous argument. And, yeah. you know, and, and we're out. Can we put a link to that? Do you yeah. mind? And of we should course. say thank you to David for reprinting it, re- oh, putting it out there in the It, it was released notes. in this month's bank notes yeah. from well, January 2020 bank It was notes. a top one, top top was article there? right there. Yeah, of course it was. And so, you know, all I have, I, I'm going to limit myself. 
on what I say <laughs> about that. I think that you wrote an outstanding article, right? It was thank you. You're welcome, and I think that everyone should read that, and everyone should share that article. If you want to find out the worst of the worst negativity when it comes to life insurance, that article by Mr. North is a place to start. And I read it one time. I don't know when he printed it. I could care less when he printed it. I read it probably, I don't know, five or 10 years ago. And I could barely get through it Mm -hmm. because he's judging everyone in the life insurance industry by his own character. I have not met the man. I've met his son-in-law is a great guy. Set he next, is, yeah. Set yeah. next to his son-in-law at an event, and I'm like, does your father-in-law know you're here? <laughs> very, very nice man. Very yeah. uh, intellectual, pro- prolific author. As a matter of fact, I'd like to have him on as a guest sometime in the future. However, I read the article, and Nelson greatly enjoyed the writings of Gary North. Mm-hmm. And when I read this particular article that you've eviscerated politely with your article, after I read that, I'm like, Nelson, what, are you kidding me? You, why would you tell anybody to read anything that this man has written? Mm -hmm. And of course, Nelson was much more righteous than I am. (laughs) Uh, And I still try to- Our example. (laughs) Live, you know, up to his uh, example. And he said, well, James, uh, he just doesn't know. That doesn't mean everything else that he's written is bad. You know, and I'm like, okay, well, I'm not ever going to read it again, ever. <laughs> and so it was painful for me to read your article a mm. year ago, and I reread it again. Mm. And it, the reason it's painful is because you have to mention what you're rebutting. Right. And correcting. Yeah. So, and I'm, that's probably all I need to say on that. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's, that's the one article, you know, who knows what other conversation has been had about life insurance about whole life in the libertarian and in the Austrian world, because there is such a, I don't know if it's a hostility or if it's an ignorance or if it's a refusal. I don't know what it is. It's all of those. Keep going. Yeah. Um, It's just totally put to the side. In fact, this is a lighthearted story to break it up. I had a a liberty oriented, I won't name the station, but a a radio station, a marketer from the radio station called me up and offered me the opportunity to pay him Right, thousands of dollars. Is that the way it was presented, though? Oh, it's, it's an, an, <laughs> it was an opportunity. Oh my gosh, yeah. we have this exclusive audience and all these social media. Ninety thousand listeners. You know, people got to be careful. You come at me with these little offers. We have a podcast, you know, <laughs> and he's not afraid to put you on blast. <laughs> not, not. I won't name names, but you know, the, these ideas irritate me. And then you know, yeah. So, I'm a, you're going to offer me the opportunity to pay you to come talk about something for 30 minutes that we've had a podcast on for over a year now. Hours and hours. And I'm going to get it across in that little bit of time. I mean, we're 46 minutes into this one and I mean, have covered tremendous ground that you know wouldn't come across in a paid for marketing oriented radio interview. So well, like, don't, don't you have to have a click funnel built to, uh, to run all those yeah. responses? Got to have a landing page, you know. Yeah, paywall. <laughs> In, in a conversion rate, click you know, through rate. And this, uh, so on the way here today, <coughs> I was listening to um, a fa- one of our podcasts. I'm sure. No, <laughs> actually, I think he's passed away now. So John Bogle, oh yeah, the founder of uh, Vanguard. Vanguard. Right? Yeah. So I was listening to a interview. I like listen to the main 
names in the intellectual tradition of mainstream finance, and he's really one of them. Oh, let me tell you what, John Bogle turned the industry on its head by low and no fees. Right. And he... Uh, And let me say, when I... 1991, I think, is when... uh, It was a long time ago. The front-end loads on mutual funds at that time was 8.5%, and that was normal. Mm -hmm. And here, the Vanguard comes with... No fees, low fees, you yeah. know, 0.65. I love mm-hmm. it. Okay, I digress. So he was making the, you know, the interviewer was asking him about how he perceived the industry today and what's happened with mutual funds and exchange-traded funds and all this. And he made the distinction between a, a professional and stewardship on the one hand and a marketer and a salesman on the other hand. Ooh. And he said, you know, I'd... I prefer the the professional money manager, um, not the marketing. He said said that what's happened in the mutual fund and exchange traded fund world, especially because a lot of them are publicly held. And so there's an inherent conflict of interest in these funds. You know, you got shareholders and then you've got the uh, other public owners of the company and then you got the actual clients. And it's like, who are we trying to benefit here, right? Um, He was bemoaning... Uh, upset that the industry had become so sales and marketing oriented and that the idea of professional long-term oriented uh, stewardship stewardship had fallen away. And it's like, oh my gosh, you could swipe out mutual funds and throw in IBC and dividend paying whole life. And I see a lot of the same elements. Oh, no question. uh, The emphasis on marketing, the emphasis on getting the sale, on selling from the illustration, on uh, uh, indulging the desire to not pay your dues. It's like, ooh. We're talking about capital and access to capital. You know, that shouldn't I do something that's 100% liquid in year one if I want 100% access to my capital? You know, I mean, so that's I'm how far saying. your time view stretches. <laughs> <laughs> what does that do to the fifth year, sixth year, tenth year? I'm just saying mm. that good information. Nelson, in my opinion, got it done in 92 pages. Big print, lots of Seriously. illustration, blank pages. You know, and and he probably, I don't want to say shouldn't have, or I mean, he wouldn't have put the illustrations in if he were to redo that book, right? And rightly so, I agree with that, but. And I also understand that people need to see something. You know, I get the idea that you need to see an illustration. You need to understand how these work and what your money's doing, what your contractual rights are and what your contractual obligations are. And you need to have the knowledge and you need to be comfortable enough and have the knowledge to manage that asset because mm-hmm. it is an asset and how you're going to integrate it into everything that you do. And then because it's life insurance, oh, wait a minute, it matches your life. Is the first year important, the 10th year important, which is the most important year? And everybody says, you know, and I agree that um, to a certain extent, I agree, that we're discounting the death benefit. Well, you can only discount the death benefit so far. The older you get, I guarantee you the more important the death, death benefit's going to be. And I don't care who you are and I don't care how old you are. Now, if you're a 75-year-old individual and said, no, nah, nah, I never did buy life insurance. It never was important to me. I, Okay, those, those are the decisions that you've made and those, that's the place that you're in. That does not mean that the other 75-year-old individual who has $10 million in death benefit and five children, 15 grandchildren would want to do away with that death mm-hmm. benefit. And I'm not, I'm mm-hmm. just saying, mm-hmm. you can discount the death benefit. 
all day long. Mm -hmm. You cannot buy life insurance without the death benefit. And the older you get, the more important that death benefit is going to become. Not only on legacy, there's so many um, valuable characteristics of life insurance. When you get into a high information purchase Mm -hmm. that we're in, that to oversimplify, you're discounting the death benefit, you're trying to get all cash in day one, what are you doing? You're trying to compare that with cash, you know? And, and Just keep you, the cash. To do that, you're, you're either you don't understand or you don't value all of the other characteristics mm-hmm. that are in life insurance, so. <clears throat> Absolutely. Okay, thank you for letting me. Well, and I'll mention this too. That, into that. Yeah, and then, then I still get these Maybe by the time, hopefully, this podcast episode comes out, it'll no longer ever happen, but I doubt it. Uh, you know, the mention from, and I'm not getting any, I know someone's feelings going to get hurt, but I'm not getting mad at anybody in particular. But we have a certain view in our practices about how policies should be built, depending upon the scenario that we use them. There's a unique way to approach charitable giving oh, yeah. with life insurance and, you know, all very powerful and I still get the, oh, well, could you just, you know, it won't take long. Just send me a, a quick illustration. And uh, no, 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 I won't. And it's not that, and you mentioned that, you know, we want you to do your research. You should know what you're buying and all that. And that's very true. It's not that you should never look at an illustration. It's that there's a proper place in the process. Yes. There are certain things that need to happen before you get to that point. And, and to, you know, you're putting a loaded gun in the hand of someone ain't, who ain't trained to shoot. If you start throwing around illustrations without an, a mutual understanding that it, of all of the other things that matter for the longevity and the quality and the integrity of that policy that you don't see on the page of numbers, right? And the little, it's kind of a, a demeaning tone, like a little condescend, like, well, just send me the, <laughs> I deserve it. I'm entitled. Just yeah. send me this. No, no. And, and that's, so I know it comes from a good place. It comes from a desire to have clarity. That's not how it comes. No, I won't. I, I wish the illustrations weren't in becoming your own banker. Uh, I mean, they, they're there. We, they can be of value, but Nelson's seminar was eight hours for a reason. The ones I teach, or 10 hours, the ones I teach now, eight hours, you know, we'd go through a lot before we get to those numbers, right? Because everyone wants to grapple onto the numbers. You know, we always have a proclivity to attach ourselves to the scene and forfeit or sacrifice the unseen. Oh, no question. And the unseen is where it all goes down. You know, that's <laughs> right. what matters. And so to indulge that the natural human the proclivity, proclivity to just want to the numbers. just show me and so I can hold yeah. it and, you know, I want to have as much capital as possible, as quick as possible. I want something for nothing. You know, I want all my income. Just like you said earlier, you do the work, send me the check later. You know, it's like, Oh, we got to, that has to, for our benefit, for the client's benefit, for the company's benefit, for the client's beneficiary's beneficiary's benefit, all of that has to, it's got to stop. Um, well, it, and it, all it's good not going to stop. Time, right, it's not going to. <clears throat> I mean, these, the, the life insurance companies have been arguing with each other over dividends, cash value, stock. You know, mutual, direct, non-direct for well over 100 years, 200 years, yeah. over 200 years. So it's not going to stop. It's not going to. You know, so, but it's okay to wish. 
But we have the opportunity <laughs> to opt out. And isn't that the beautiful <clears throat> part? Oh, secession. We can just secede oh from the whole situation and not political secession. I mean, that's great too, but still political. You know, every got a water. Every time I hear the word political, I want to substitute it with the word incoherent. You know, if something's political, eh, just call it. So, okay, you just kind of missed the point, right? We want to secede in the important ways. And yeah, political secession would be nice. And a lot of libertarians talk about that today. And it's kind of the alternative. There's the elitist libertarian people out there who want to, you know, reform government and talk to the policymakers and you know, they got to win the prizes. If they, would do, the, if they would just construct the government their way, everything would be okay. Oh, isn't that magical? Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's bad. But if we were in charge, it'd be good. It's uh, like the next greatest socialist. Well, this is different. They didn't do it right. My, yeah. my socialism is better than theirs. This one will work. So that's one camp of the uh, incredibly libertarian side. And then the other camp, really, and the one that I'm more amenable to, the one that I think is closer to the truth, is more of a decentralized political secession-style libertarianism where it's like, well, okay, you, get, you, you people over in California do what you want, you know, whatever the <laughs> politically f uh, inflamed topics are, you guys go get involved there. And we here in Texas, we'll live our lives the way we want. You know, no reason somebody in Nancy Pelosi's district should be telling somebody in Auburn, Alabama, how to live their life kind of thing. And but who are going to build the roads? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we can decentralize. The children are starving. The argument is we can decentralize, you know, bring it back to the states and even better, bring it back to the locality or the city or the county or what have you. And it's like, okay, you know, how many of these people have gone to, I call it uh, small town, big government, you know, and I used to live in a more rural town in West Texas. And it's like, just because you're local doesn't mean you're any less political. Oh, my and God. In fact, it can be worse. <laughs> it will. Right? It starts, listen, yes. my experience, it starts right at the school board level, mm. right to the local home, town, parish, city, town, whatever, township, Yeah. The county yeah. level. So it's it like, just okay. gets worse the higher yeah. up in government you go. So and what's the solution? Well, maybe if you fractionate government in that way, maybe there's less ability, say, for a, a central bank to get together the funding to maintain an empire. And that's all true. I mean, I'm, I'm all for that. <laughs> fine. But, you know, there's more to be done. And I think as libertarians, we the problem often is we are negative. We say, oh, don't do this. That's not the answer. Oh. We say, oh, you know, centralized government's not the answer or, you know, uh, giving welfare, or, uh, special privileges or legal privileges, all that's not the answer. And it's like, yeah, okay, that's all fine. But people still want to know what to do. You know, what's the positive? What else is there besides all of these? No, no, no. You tell me no a lot. You know, what else? Well, secession's great. Opting out is great, but there's all these other elements of life that you can secede from. You know, the politic, big politics is so bad because they got big financing. Well, if you're against the big politics, you know, shouldn't you question the relation, your financial relationship that's helping fund all that? You know? Yeah, I question so, every time I pay taxes. Point me. I think <laughs> spiritual, personal, commercial, economic secession is all way more, if, I mean, far more certainly will be more impactful to the individual's life no question because right? you ain't gonna go organize a constitutional amendment to get your state to separate from the union or something i mean it's like okay well, they're trying well, they're gonna keep at you it. know quite frankly what is that movement is it the uh, uh, a convention of states uh, man that, that 
that raises my eyebrow. My God, have they even read the Articles of Confederation? Yeah. Listen, and, reg- no. and regardless of your political leaning, I'm not saying you got to be a libertarian, I'm not saying you got to be interested in the economics, uh, none of that. You don't have to be. What I am saying is that becoming your own banker is the process to reclaim authority over the capital accumulation and deployment function. And regardless of your employment or your style of economic activity or your political leanings or your religious leanings, you know, opting out and becoming your own bankers for everybody. And it is, it will have the most impact on the all American individual. It will. That secession. Because we're dealing with capital. We're dealing with an individual personal control over capital, you know? And so that's why that, part of that whole realization of how investing and addressing the investing questions fits. It's like, you know, really what's going on is that most of the financial, most, the vast majority of the financial industry does not understand the real, true, most fundamental, most severe problem that Americans face in the world of finance, right? It is not a point or two more on the investment side of the picture. It is how much (laughs) we're losing Oh my you know, gosh. in terms of control, in terms of and quantity of calculate capital. that out over one, two or three or more generations, that loss, it's significant. I mean, man, we covered some ground. We did. I, I, I could, I could go on and, uh, maybe not win so many friends, <laughs> <laughs> but look, secession, you can secede from the financial system. That's what the infinite banking concept is all about. Mm. But then it's, you know, uh, apparently highly complicated when it's not necessarily complicated. It is high information that is completely available. Mm -hmm. And that's our encouragement is that you research is vet this idea, vet this concept for yourself. See if it makes sense. Learn how to properly classify what's going on. And uh, I mean, I, I appreciate the listener's ability to classify correctly mm-hmm. because we depend upon it uh, no question it's like when you go out in the big wide world the infinite banking concept becoming your own banker which is from r nelson nash birmingham alabama and i um all of the me too's the copycats and outright bastardization of mm-hmm. this idea that's gone on if you start at nelson's work becoming your own banker building your warehouse of well the NNI, their series of videos. Um, I think some of the best education comes from exactly this podcast, The Banking with Life. Um, there's plenty to learn. You can learn it, and you can learn it cor- correctly. Mm-hmm. And my God, the more you know, you're going to quickly see whether I should do it or shouldn't do it. And then, but you have to be able to sift through the noise out there. Yeah. You know, you have to be able to. Well, this is infinite banking this way, or that way, or this way, or this company, or that company. Right. That's a big role that I see that this, that our podcast, this show plays. Uh, one of them is addressing those people who, you know, are wondering, how do I know when I'm ready? You know, I'm interested, I'm researching, you know, you could spend the rest of your life researching something, right? Uh, like a professor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, how well, do if I, he's well connected, it could, you know, yeah. get a Nobel Right. <laughs> and how do I know when it's time to pull the trigger or move forward, you know, contact an eight, you'll feel it. You know, just like Nelson used to say, IBC is more caught than taught. You know, it, I have found that you reach a moment where it's like, ah, oh, 
And usually there's something or maybe a couple things that is that are preventing that light bulb kind of moment. You know, go after those. Find clarity on those. Uh, don't let the perception of compli- of complexity or the perception of oversophistication stop you from finding or understanding. Oversimplification. Or over yes, exact oversimplification or oversophistication. Either one. Don't let that stop you. And you know, find find those answers you need. And then when you do, just like Nelson says, rule five: use it or lose it. You know, get to work. Yep. Pay a premium. All right. All right. That was in Parkinson's Law. Use it or lose it. Yep. All right. Thank you for listening. I had fun. Me too. Talk to you next time. One hour. Yeah. Boom. Thank you for joining us on the Banking with Life podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe and click on that little notification bell. Otherwise, join us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for weekly content.